in unity. So we are grateful and God is at work and the, today we are not continuing our book, our, our, our finishing out the book of Acts like I thought we were going to again. We switched on again as we talked about it this week on Wednesday. Um, we would like to continue to equip you in how to think biblically in the midst of a culture that's increasingly divided by racism, really divided by differences of mere uh, ethnicity. And um, if you were here last week or if you weren't here last week, I'll kind of fill you in on where we, what we talked about. Um, there were kind of six foundational truths that we talked about that we must as a church and that we will champion as a church. And, and so those, those foundational church, uh, or truths in review really are just every ethnic group we talked about is made in the image of God. And that changes the way that we view everyone on the planet. We saw that truth from Genesis 1, 27 and again from Paul in Acts 17, 26. And because of that, we view each other equally as image bearers. And the second truth that we looked at was that every ethnic group is equally sinful and only justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ. And so that puts us on a level playing field. We're all in need of God's grace equally. And then we looked at the third truth that our identity in Christ transcends any ethnic or social division. There are real ethnic and social divisions which create division in the world. However, our new identity in Christ is meant to transcend that, to replace those old broken identities and to transcend those divisions. And so the fourth truth we want to champion is that we've been called to make disciples of every ethnicity, not just do we need to know that every ethnicity is made in the image of God, that our identity really is in Christ transcends social divisions, that we're equally sinful, equally in need of God's grace, but we've been called to make disciples of every nation. That's part of our core mission. And then the fifth truth we looked at is all believers in Jesus from every ethnic group are members of the same body. If you are here and you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you are members of the exact same body of Christ, the same blood of Christ that we celebrated this morning gives us life. And that blood of Christ figuratively flows through each and every one of us and gives each and every one of us life. We share the same blood. By the same blood we were bought. We partake of the same body. We're in the same body, in the same family, brothers and sisters. The sixth truth we looked at is that we're called to love and care for everyone in the body intentionally. Because love is the motive for Jesus coming down to the earth to die for us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to bind up the wounded, to heal the brokenhearted by his mercy and grace. We're called to love each other and to love our neighbor as he has loved us. And I wanted to remind you briefly of those truths because how we think about people around us, it has to start with what God and what the Bible says about the people around us, about us, about who we are fundamentally. Who is God? Who are we made in his image? And we have to let that inform us. We have to let the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truths of the fact that we are all in need, inform us. And then we're meant for those truths, which is kind of what we're going to be, begin to do this week. Although I was telling Aaron, I said, you could probably have six messages. We're not going to do that to you. But you could probably have six messages talking about the implications of living out the theological truth that we believe. What I want to do today is to, is to bring some kind of a, a, a biblical gospel perspective and then just towards the end talk about how can we think about applying this. Now, we don't want to be legalistic, and I'm not going to give you a long list of different things to do. But you know why? Because it's really simple for us to take a list and go and do it and think that we've changed. 
It's simple for us to, it's reductionistic for us to think, oh, if I'm just doing these things, then I'm acceptable in the eyes of God. And it's, it's simple for us to take pride in those things. And I want us to avoid that. At the same time, I want to challenge all of us to think. We need to be a thinking community who says, what, what does it look like to take these great truths and apply them to my heart to repent, to change, and apply them to my life and to live differently? So as we're going through, I'm going to ask you, how can we apply the truths from last week and this week to, to who we are and how we live in our workplace and our schools and our communities and, and communities around us? As we affirmed from last week, we all come from one man. There's only one human race. So I'm going to be talking about race and racism. And I, I almost avoid using that term because really that's, that's kind of a silly term. We all come from one race, the race of Adam. And then all of us were fallen in sin. And so the effects that we see of what we call racism are the effects of that fallen humanity. But Jesus came to, to bring us into his new race, his chosen race. And to recreate us. And in, and, in, and in Christ, there's no division. It meant to be no division between Jew and Greek. Between any ethnicity. Between male and female. We're not to discriminate on that basis. But each one is social structure. And so, as I use the word racism, just have in mind that I'm using a cultural term because it's helpful. Because that's how people talk. That's how we speak in the world around us. So we don't have to be artificial. But at the same time, what we're referencing is the fact that we have an unfortunate tendency as humans, to take pride in one trait or color or one aspect of our humanness over another human's traits or colors or aspects. And that's what I mean when we talk about ethnicity or racism or ethnic divide. So today, to equip you, we're going to talk about point two, really, how to think about how to respond to the racism and ethnic division that we see. So before we do, though, if you would pray with me. Um, It is a thorny subject, and we need God's help. Let's pray. Father God, this is a topic that is fraught with challenges. We acknowledge that. We are aware of that. God, I'm aware that I will, and I often do, get things wrong when it comes to how I think about and how I behave to people of different backgrounds. Lord, help me see that. Help me see those areas. Lord, help all of us see those areas where we get things wrong. But Lord, help us not stay there and wallow in guilt and condemnation. But Lord, help us receive your cleansing power of the gospel as we confess and repent. God, we all need your help. We all like to think at times that we are the only people who get things right in this area. But God, we acknowledge we all make mistakes. We're all guilty. We all get it wrong. And we need your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, come open up our blind eyes. Soften our hard hearts. Bring convictions for bitterness, for resentment, for pride, for self-righteousness, for fear, God, for apathy. God, deliver us from evil. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. God, we pray for your holy kingdom to come, your rule and your reign to come, just like it is in heaven, Lord. Would you rule and reign in our hearts? And would you rule and reign in the communities around us and in this church? And God, would your will be done in our lives, in this church, in our culture, just like it is in heaven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why am I here for for part two? Why are we here week two talking about questions of of identity and ethnicity and race? I'll tell you why we're not here. We're not here to be political. We're not here because we're trying to say one political party has it right, the other political party has it wrong. No, we're all wrong. 
Because all of humanity tries to use racism as an agenda item, and it's, it's something that Jesus came to overcome. And we're not talking because we want to be politically correct or because we're fearful. Actually, the gospel, the power of the gospel comes and delivers us from fear. So we can talk openly and honestly. It delivers us from condemnation, delivers us from guilt, and it transforms. And so I'm here talking about again because I think as I consider our church, as I consider my own life um, and how we've either equipped or not equipped you to, to tackle this subject, I don't think we've done a good job in serving you and, and, and helping tackle the subject of, of racism and ethnicity and, and ethnic conflict. And so we hope to continue to equip you in this and hopefully at least once a year or so we can, we can bring up issues and topics like this. But I think as well that a lot of us have not trained the powers, as, as the Bible talks about, trained our powers of discernment so that we might have wisdom in how to live as, as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation with the people around us. And, and also the reason why is because the issue of racism has not gone away as we found from two weeks ago. All that's happened is it's just been pushed under the surface and it's kind of just bubbling under the surface like a, a volcano that any moment is about to erupt. And there seems to be a fragile crust across society that is so easily being breached. And yes, this week, the media shifted their attention from racism, rightly or wrongly, um, and instead it became about issues like a flag or not a flag, Listen, this issue is much, much greater than that. Um, We're not called as Christians to to champion some political cause or not political cause. See, the gospel transforms all of those things. Um, We we don't want to use this as a political agenda. But but it continues to be a problem. And and it's important to address things like symbols and and what they mean to people and how they affect people and how do we be loving to people. It's important for us to think about that, to apply that to the people around us. But the first point I want to start with is that racism is not a new concept. It's something that the Bible reveals and it's something that the Bible addresses. Racism is a problem that the Bible reveals and the Bible addresses. We talked about a little bit last week that really in the very beginning when Satan came in the form of a serpent, he came to attack the image of God. And so men and women who are already made in the image of God, he told them that if you just eat this fruit, it'll open your eyes so that you will be like God. As if they could become God or become superior. It would make them like God. Although they already bore God's image. And so really he was attacking at the very beginning that, that, that core fundamental idea of our identity and where we place our identity. And often... Really, so many of those problems is when we place our identity in anything other than Jesus Christ, we go astray. So we look though in the garden. We see God already had planned to crush the lies of the devil, to turn back that deformity of the image of God. In, in Genesis 3.15, um, God, he is cursing the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Speaking of he, speaking, looking forward to Jesus. And you shall bruise his heel. So God was not surprised by the very things that caused the issues that we face. And he already had created a remedy to address them prior to time ever beginning. And 
Unfortunately, the devil still continues to assault us. Racism is not the only sin. Let's not think that way. Let's not act as if racism is the only sin or the biggest sin of humanity. We've got a lot. But it is one that, that tends to plague us, and it's just one sin of the devil's arsenal to distort the image of God and man. And so we should be careful. We don't want to blow the ideas of racism out of proportion, but at the same time, we want to realize that it, it hits at the very core identity of who we are. So we don't want to ignore it or minimize it either. One of the ways the devil still attempts to, to manage, I mean, to, to tempt mankind is to find worth in our own image. And so we're tempted to racism through pride and through fear and through guilt, through inferiority, through self-righteousness, through greed, through apathy. And the gospel, the good news is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it addresses each of these temptations, each of those triggers. You know, does the gospel address the greed that drove men to get slaves? Yes, it does. Does the gospel address apathy that really many of us live out? You know, if we really believe that we're made in God's image and everyone around us is made in God's image, we would not be so apathetic when we see people mistreated. And yet the gospel addresses our apathy as well. It addresses our self-righteousness, our smugness. It addresses inferiority for people who've been discriminated against. It addresses fear and stereotyping. And so although sin has already separated mankind and people were scattered through a curse, we saw very early on God gave a promise to Abraham. He called Abraham out and he gave him a promise that through his seed... All the nations of the earth would be blessed. And at the very beginning, the problems were already occurring, yet God was already addressing those concerns. We see blatant racism in the book of Numbers. You ever thought about that? In Numbers 12. I want you to turn there. I think we might have an overheads for you. I'm not sure if we do or not, actually. So, um, perfect. Look at that. Numbers 12. Numbers 12. Read you a story. Numbers 12, 1 to 10. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out, and the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words, there is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That'll become important in a moment. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Now, something important to know is that um, the Cushite woman who, who he married was a black African. How do I know that? Well, in, in Jeremiah 12, uh, 13, 23, there's the same exact Hebrew word that's used for Cushite. It's also used for Ethiopian. And in Jeremiah, it says, can the Ethiopian, the same as Cushite, change his skin or the leopard his spots? Ethiopians and Cushites, and Cush was an area south of Egypt, where if you look today, the descendants of the area south of Egypt still continue to have darker skin. And so it says why they were mad 
Why they, they spoke against Moses. It wasn't just because he wanted to lead. They thought he was making a grave mistake. They thought he was violating God's laws by marrying outside of the Jewish race and ethnicity. He says, they spoke against Moses because, he tells you why directly, because of the Cushite woman whom he'd married. Huh. But do you see in this passage in in Numbers, God is not correcting Moses. He corrects Miriam and Aaron. And what does he say about Moses? He commends Moses. He says, Moses is faithful. He's not doing anything unfaithful. He's not going against my commandments. He's not going against my will. He's being faithful to me. In all my house, he's faithful. And then, the racially motivated speaking against Moses is judged by God. God. God's angry with them for speaking against Moses. But what were they speaking against Moses? They were speaking against Moses because he married a woman from south of Egypt. And, and there's something there that I don't know if it's me reading it or not, but there's something that's ironic when you look at the punishment that Miriam received. It's almost as if God's saying, Miriam, you're, you're taking pride in your lighter skin. You're differentiating in your lighter skin versus the Cushite woman. You want to be white? It says, very intentionally, he made her leprous like snow. That white skin was not a superior thing for her. In the very punishment, it was correcting her thinking. God, God didn't tolerate that, and, and, and he didn't tolerate them questioning Moses' leadership because of it. They thought he was leading poorly because he married a Cushite woman. And, well, let's skip ahead to the New Testament for a moment. We're going to see that Jesus confronted the sin of racism and the people of Nazareth when they wanted to kill him for it, too. So let's look in, in Luke 4, 16. You may have thought about this as closely. Let's, let's think about this closely in the implications for what Jesus said and who he was talking to and what they're getting mad about. So let's listen. In Luke four sixteen, it says, And he came to Nazareth when he, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Boy, good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Boy, that's gospel hope, isn't it? We all, this is some sidetrack, but we all were poor in spirit at least. We all were captive. We all were blind and oppressed. So he says, he's done these things, proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But notice they weren't yet angry at him for saying that. Look in verse 22. This is right after Jesus just says, I fulfilled this, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be the Lord. And so how did they respond to that? It says, and all spoke well of him. You know, I think I've misread this passage before and thought they were angry at him because he was claiming to be Messiah. But, but no, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? But then Jesus quickly confronts him. He does something strange out of the blue. He shares just two quick stories and he, he kind of hits him upside the head. 
In Luke 4.25, just a couple verses down, he says, but in truth, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Elijah, the, the greatest prophet perhaps of, of the entire Old Testament. He says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel, this is important, in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah, now slow down, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Hang on, he just told them that the great prophet Elijah, God's mouthpiece, his voice on the earth was not sent to the widows of Israel. Instead, He was sent outside of Israel to Sidon, which is Phoenicia, to foreigners, to the Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. Now look down at verse 27. He says, Then there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. So Elijah's replacement, Elisha, he says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed. None of the lepers in Israel was cleansed, but only, look at what he says, but only Naaman the Syrian. Wow, so what is Jesus doing? Well, look at verse 28. I think they knew what he was doing. It says, when they heard these things, when they heard what Jesus said, that, that Elijah didn't go and, and give blessings to the widows of Israel, he gave blessings to, to the Phoenician widow. And, and Elisha, he didn't cleanse the Israelite lepers, he cleansed the Syrian leper. And when they heard that, it says in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What were they responding to? They were responding to their their ethnocentrism, to their ethnic hatred of, of the Syrians and the people of Sidon, the Phoenicians. And so Jesus, just out of nowhere, they're all thrilled with Jesus. And they're like, it's great. But then he tells them, hey, just like, just like these went to other people, I'm going to go to other people. Because right before this, he said, a prophet is with, not, not with honor in his own land. And then what do they do? They take him and they drive him outside of the city, up onto a hill, and they're getting ready to throw him off a cliff. Why? for challenging their racist, their ethnocentric ideas. Their ethnic pride was offended. They were full of wrath. Jesus knew what he was doing. See, the Bible, it, it reveals and addresses. There's, there's so many scriptures we could go to all throughout like that that most of us just read over and skip over. But it's always been God's plan to proclaim the reconciling gospel to all the nations. In fact, Jesus in in Mark 13.10 says, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations before his return. It was always his plan to, to have the gospel be proclaimed to all nations, all different types of ethnicities. In Mark 16, 15, when he commissioned his disciples, he said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Some very specific words using the whole creation, speaking of the fact that all of creation equally needs the message of the good news, the gospel. I want us to think a little more deeply too. How else does the Bible address the problem of racism and begin to change that? Well, in the book of Acts, we went through at the beginning of the year in Acts 2, the, 
the very beginning, I'm reading an account from Acts 2. In verse 8 of Acts 2, it says, and how is it that we hear, see, the, the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, and, and then they began to speak in all kinds of other tongues. And so in Acts 2, 8, he says, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, who, by the way, are called liars in Scripture later. In Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Every race, every ethnicity in the day of Pentecost was being addressed. The very onset of the gospel. They were mocking them, but Peter says in, in verse 16, He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Speaking specifically of all different kinds of flesh. As we see from just a few examples of the Bible, doesn't ignore the concerns of racism and ethnic divide. God reveals and he addresses ethnocentrism directly in his word. The second truth I want us to see is the good news that that Jesus came to powerfully defeat racism. The good news of Jesus powerfully defeats racism. Even in the bloodline of Jesus, we can, we can see God removing the division of ethnicity. Think about that. If you look in the bloodline of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew, you can see who were Jesus' descendants. And there's two prominent descendants in the bloodline of Jesus, or in his parents' bloodline, more, more accurately, in his lineage. We see Rahab, a a foreigner and a prostitute. Not only was she reviled because she was a foreigner and and she was from Jericho, a hated people in a hated city, she was a woman. So now she has two strikes against her in those days. And then not only that, she was the lowest kind. She was a prostitute. And yet we see the gospel of Jesus Christ redeeming her ethnicity. We see a Moabite woman, Ruth, in the lineage of Jesus. And Jesus showing a picture of the great redeemer and her husband being buying her back and redeeming her, her kinsman redeemer. And Jesus is our great kinsman redeemer who redeems other ethnicities, just like Boaz. Well, let's look back at Luke 4 again just for a moment. Let's look at what what. Jesus was proclaiming that they rejoiced him before they got sidetracked by the fact that he was going to come and give that message to other nations. Let's look at what he declared in the gospel. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, not to set into slavery, not to set into discrimination, but to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor on all people. People were poor, they were held captive, they were blind, they were oppressed, and Jesus came to directly address and overturn those problems in the world that existed when he came. But it wasn't just limited to that day. And those problems aren't limited to that day either. See, all these same problems of poverty and captivity and blindness and oppression, they all still exist if we're honest with ourselves. 
talking to my dad yesterday and about preparing for this and, and I was asking him questions. He was in the army during the civil rights movement the first few years and he was stationed in Fort Belvoir in Virginia and, and his battalion outside of D.C., it got called up to go into D.C. to protest the march, I mean, to, to, to make sure the protest didn't get out of hand for the march on Washington in 1963, I think it was. And he said they drove tanks and heavy equipment and they mounted machine guns on the heavy equipment and they were prepared and they were given orders to fire if anybody got out of hand, whether they were armed or not. Nineteen sixty three the police used attack dogs and turned high pressure fire hoses on several thousand high school students who were pre- peacefully protesting in Alabama. Unless we think this is such a long gone issue. That my my dad was an adult in those years. This is not a far gone issue. Some of you probably remember that as well. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to the spot where just 47 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. South Carolina took until 1998 to finally overturn the law that said people from different races were not allowed to intermarry. 1998? It's not so long ago. Alabama didn't remove the law that outlawed marriage between a white, as it read, and, these offensive terminology, a Negro or a descendant of a Negro until the year 2000. This is 15 years ago. This isn't that distant. Where there were laws still discriminating. Earlier in that same year, in 2000, the, the Mobile Register polled the citizens of Alabama And 21% affirmed that they would like to keep that law. Another 20% were ambivalent to whether they got kept it or removed it. That's 40% of the population that didn't care about inequality. 2005, to quote an author, Shelby Steele, on the topic of, of racial discrimination, he says, the gap between black and white students already exists when the children are entering kindergarten. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, half of black children starting kindergarten scored in the bottom quarter on general knowledge. 40% of black kindergartners were in the bottom quarter on math. And one-third of black kindergartners were in the bottom quarter on reading. Now, it's not just isolated to to black-white issues. It's just more prevalent because of systematic suppression and oppression historically. There's a social and structural discrimination at the root that we all contribute to knowingly or unknowingly. And you can think, well, you know what? I mean, I've heard the argument of, well, you know, I'm not racist. I've never discriminated against anybody. Why, why is it such a big deal? Well, if your dad was hosed down with a fire hose and it ripped his shirt off because it was so powerful it could rip the bark off a tree, I think it might still mean something to you. If there was still a law in your state that said you couldn't marry somebody of a different color, I think you might, you might feel like that is a systemic Discrimination. And, and at the same time, there are structures 
and the way that support systems and, and different ways that welfare is carried out that, that actually contributes to harm that we're aware of, but we don't do much about. That's not to make, meant to make us feel guilty, but it's meant to make us aware. Um, now, the good news of the gospel is that he came to remove all guilt so that we can actually be free to go and change things and go and do Unless we think that, you know, the whole idea is personal responsibility because we like to champion that in America. We like to say, well, it's about my individual, how do I treat people? Yes, it is, but it's about more than that too because we're still responsible for the sins of our fathers. It's a biblical principle. It's not a Western American principle, but it's a biblical principle. You see, in, in Daniel 9, he confesses his shame and asks forgiveness, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people, of the people. Not just for the sins of the people he was living with currently, but for the sins of their fathers. And God responded to that. The idea of corporate responsibility is all throughout the Old Testament. If you think about the sin of Achan, his entire family was punished because of his sin. There's several different ways of looking at that. In Romans 5 as well. But Today, people are still marginalized and poor because of the color of their skin and the social structures that perpetuate racism. People are still oppressed. And and the holdover from that is still existent. But the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, that he sends us into the world to proclaim, it addresses these problems, doesn't it? That's good news for us. The gospel applies specifically, so let's apply it specifically for us and for our lives and the people around us. You see, the gospel compels us, the final truth I want to look at is the gospel compels us to address racism. It compels us to address racism. In in 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul wrote, For the love of Christ controls or compels us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. It's a comprehensive statement. Therefore, all have died. All who place their faith in him have died. Because Jesus has died for all. All who place their faith in him have died to their old sin nature. So, here's the good news for us as Christians. We have all died to being in bondage to pride, to fear, to greed, to the apathy that fuel ethnocentrism and racism. By the power of the gospel, we don't have to be that way. We can wake up. We can be different. We can love like Jesus because the love of Christ has come. It compels us. It controls us. It's the question for you. Is the love of Christ controlling and compelling for you? Do you have a compelling view of the love of Christ that has come to set you free, that has justified you when we were completely unjust and unrighteous? That's cleansed you from all your sins. It gives you hope. It says, yes, we can be different because he's made us new in him. Does that love and mercy compel you? Sadly, I, I have to say for myself, it, it often has not compelled me. I've often seen systemic things and thought, yeah, that's not right. But I've never really done anything to try to overcome that. Have I seen fit to, like Daniel, try to right the wrongs of the past? even if we're not doing them today ourselves, to try to bring the good news of the gospel of Christ to bear because Jesus came to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor, to open blind eyes, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the love of Christ controls us to do the very same things. As Christians, we've all died to being in bondage to those things that make us fearful or keep us from responding and doing. And you know, racism is not a one-way thing either. It's not just about a white thing. I'm not just talking to white people here. Racism is across the board. It's across the board. Um, my wife had a, um, a roommate from China who didn't like people from Japan and vice versa. Um, there are people from every different ethnicity who hate others of different ethnicities. It's not a white-black thing. This is every ethnicity. We all do that. Um, let's not have white pride, black pride, Hispanic pride. Let's have pride in, in boasting in the cross. But you know, his followers are still tempted to sin in that way, and even prominent followers of Jesus Christ are still tempted. So you have good company if you're tempted. Prominent followers of Jesus Christ are still tempted to discriminate. Now here, I'll give you an example. In Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul says, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Whoa. Upon this rock I will build my church. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he's opposing him to his face. He says, Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, here's Peter's practice, he tells us, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person, and he's applying the gospel to racism right here, is not justified by works of the law, by merit or demerit, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, like the Gentiles, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Out of fear for maybe how it looked or maybe how they, he'd be judged, Peter shunned the Gentiles where once he'd eaten with them. But in order to appear not to be defiled, as, as if any person could defile him, and that's what Paul's correcting that notion, he separated along with Barnabas, and Paul corrects them for their hypocrisy of separation from the Gentile race. The gospel says that we all come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. If you truly grasp the, the, the thought of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, you're going to want to take that good news to everybody. All of us come equally. All of us are made clean and undefiled. And Paul corrects them because what they were doing, if you looked at what he said, it was not in step with the gospel So this withdrawing and separating from other ethnicities is not in step with the gospel. It couldn't be more clear. It's not in step with the good news of Jesus Christ. I like what John Piper said about this encounter. He was writing in a book called Bloodlines. By the way, I really highly recommend that book to you. You can download it for free as a PDF or you can buy it if you want the hard copy or whatever, but... Um, he, he writes in that book, Peter had been experiencing the freedom of the gospel as a Jew. I don't know if we have this for you or not. Um, and was crossing the ethnic and religious barriers to eat with Gentiles. He was eating with them, simply hanging out, doing the most ordinary thing, eating together. 
in spite of all the food laws that might be jeopardized, it was still a good thing because Jesus declared all foods clean and said it was a good thing. And he says that is what we want to happen across ethnic lines in our churches and neighborhoods and schools. It's not staged. It's not artificial or programmed. They are simple, free, natural relationships. They were eating together. He says there should be, I like, I like Piper more now, there should be huge amounts of eating together in Christian relationships. And in the process, he says, we should enjoy gospel freedom and forgetting all ethnic limitations. There can be and should be a natural, joyful, spontaneous mixing of ethnic groups in our table fellowship. And the question we have to ask is, is our life, is our, our, our habits, the people we are drawn to, is it in step with the gospel? Or do we withdraw? Practically, are, you, are we pursuing that kind of joyful, spontaneous table fellowship with people of other ethnicities? Are we saying true things about the gospel in how we relate to or avoid other people of different ethnicities? Do you get nervous or fearful? If you're honest with yourself, you probably do. You're probably tempted to judge one member of a, of a different race based on um, conclusions and stereotypes about the race as a whole. Now, it's going to sound crazy. Racism comes into play when you apply those things to a person you know nothing about. When you're prejudging them. Different cultures have different weaknesses and different sins because we all have parents and we're trained up in those things. Different temptations. But you can't apply universal temptations in different cultures to individuals and assume that they have problems. That's when we become proud and racist. So do you get nervous or fearful when you're around people of different ethnicities? Well, how are you combating that? Is that in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it say about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we proclaiming liberty to the captives? Are we bringing liberty to the oppressed? Do we think about, and sadly, I have to admit, I don't think about this. Part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to to bring liberty to the oppressed. Do I see that Jesus has, in the mission he's given me to make disciples, that I'm to be doing the same thing? So I have to think deeply. We, We all need to think deeply. What does it look like to bring the liberty of Jesus Christ to the oppressed? Yes, through the words of the gospel, but also what does it look like to actually liberate too? Are we proclaiming that liberty and how we treat people and how we speak? Are we boasting as if we're better than anybody else? Galatians 6, 4, the gospel confronts it. It says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Um, if you are proud of whatever ethnic group you are and you think that your ethnic group doesn't struggle like other ethnic groups, let me ask you the same question the Apostle Paul asked. He says, if everything you've been given is a gift from God, why do you boast as if it's not? See, the gospel puts to death any and all of those temptations. And then in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, because of the great love that we've received from Jesus Christ, because we have died with Christ and been resurrected with him and made new. He's saying, put to death the things that belong to the old man, what's earthly in you. See, the gospel empowers us to do that. It empowers us to tackle head-on weaknesses and say, hey, sometimes I have racist tendencies. And you know what? My dad was a racist. But thanks be to God that I can put to death those earthly things. 
And again in Romans 6.11, he says, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. We really have died. Now we have to seek to live in the reality God's created in us. You know, we can be proud. It's at the root of a lot of discrimination, racism. But the gospel says we can come and confess our sins humbly and receive forgiveness and cleansing. And that we can put to death those things because we've actually died to that way of living. The gospel compels us to put to death apathy as well about racism, to actually do something. To walk across the street or to go to those sections of town that we're uncomfortable in and start talking to people. Buy somebody you don't know to lunch. Have a meal together. You know, I was thinking about some implications and how do we do this as a church? And I don't think we do a great job at this. Now, there are a couple areas where I'm really excited to see. And that is there are so many families in the church, I think there's six or seven families that have adopted, I don't know, you call it biracially, transracially, is that the transracial adoption? And that's wonderful to see because it's a beautiful picture that God adopts people from every tribe and tongue and nation as his children. And so we carry out the Father heart of God when we seek to do the same. So that's wonderful, and I commend the families in the church who have done that and have a heart and a passion for that. Maybe more of us need to think about that. Maybe some are called to adopt across racial racial or ethnic divides. Maybe some of us here will be called to political action to end some of the structural discrimination like William Wilberforce did. God used William Wilberforce mightily 200 years ago in England to dramatically change the face of things. Now, it wasn't overnight. It took 20 years. He wrote in his diary, 20 years later, after he wrote that he was fighting to end discrimination and slave trade, 20 years later, they passed the first bill. It wasn't until his death that really he saw the fruit of his labors. And yet, he, the thing that motivated him, and I love, I love reading about him, the thing that motivated him most, mo- the most was the gospel and the doctrine of justification. That was what motivated him. That, that all men have been justified freely by God's grace. And that he had been justified freely. He didn't deserve it. And so he wanted to take that free grace everywhere. Maybe some will be called to that. Maybe some are here are afraid of conflict. The good news is that Jesus came to, to reconcile and that we are ambassadors of his peace. Maybe some withdrawing and God would call us not to withdraw but to press in. Now we're going to get it wrong, by the way. We're going to make mistakes. We're all going to say dumb things to offend each other. We're going to think we're being sensitive. We're going to say something stupid. The gospel covers that too, by the way. And it enables us to forgive people when we say stupid things to each other. So maybe some of us need to drop being offended at somebody else and say, I forgive you because I've been forgiven of everything. You know, racism is a heart problem, but we thank God that through the gospel, he's, he's given all who place their faith in him a new heart. The remaining problems fall away if we fall more in love with a mercy-giving, grace-breathing hope-instilling, peace-filling, trust-inducing, energizing gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll give you another John Piper quote from the book Bloodlines, if only to encourage you to get the book. 
far more important, he says, in the long run than any particular strategy of racial reconciliation and harmony. So listen to this. Far more important in the long run than any particular strategy of racial reconciliation and harmony is that more and more Christians glory in the grace of the gospel of justification by faith alone. When we are thrilled by the unspeakable freedom. We were slaves. We've been made free of being right with God in spite of the magnitude of our sinful corruption and that others of every race and ethnicity enjoy the same freedom with us, there will be a humility and a love and a zeal to magnify grace that dissolves ethnic hostilities. He says as we do, though, we have to humble ourselves and we have to confess that we've not been what we should be. We have to confess those areas where we're prone you know, James tells us in, James, I think it's James 1.26, he tells us that, you know, that what we speak, our tongues really reveal our hearts. So how do we speak about other people? What's that revealing? Where do we need to bring our hearts into conformity with the new heart he's already given us? You know, I thought about having the parable of the Good Samaritan. Aaron was suggesting it and because really that, that whole parable is all about who was your neighbor? And he was telling the, the sacrosanct, proud Pharisees that, look, your neighbor is not just people who look like you and act like you. And so he, he puts the Samaritan, the hated half-breeds, up as the example of loving your neighbor. I want to be clear. We're not, we're not doing this be politically correct but, there's some, correct, but there's something far bigger at stake in how we view and discuss and live out our beliefs and ethnicity. You see, what we believe about God's at stake. Do we believe that God created all of humanity? Do we believe that we're made in his image? Do we believe what we believe about the Holy Spirit, that he came to give what? To fill all people, to speak the gospel to all people. Do we believe that that's why Jesus Christ came and died, to bring liberty to all who are oppressed? Because if what we're talking about here, it has profound implications. I thought about giving hundreds of different examples, little examples, but I want us to think hard. How do we seek to live this out? Are we, are we, or, or do we just hear our message and say, oh, that was good. Do it, you know, we go back to our workplace and we don't look for opportunities to change and apply these things. Do we really believe that God's the one who created all mankind, male and female, of every size, shape, color, equally in his image, Sometimes I think we functionally don't. It's not to condemn any ethnicity for sins against another. It's not to encourage guilt. It's to say the gospel of Jesus Christ came to set us free from all those things. So now, not only do we have no excuses, we have all the hope we need. Because you know what? We can't actually overcome the power of the devil through politics or through any other means. See, the devil's at work in and through this division. He wants to divide and separate the image of God. And and yet, it says the gospel is the what? The power of God for salvation. And so because we've been given that power, we can can do all the things we're called to do to work for, on behalf of the oppressed, but we can also speak change in the gospel. And and we can be sure that he's gonna give us hope to change our hearts. Because God's power is at work in us. And we all have a corporate responsibility. You see, the body, he didn't just save us as individuals, he saved us into a body of Christ. Christianity is inherently corporate. The message of the gospel that we've been given 
It's transformational. So we have to make that, take that transformational message and apply it to every area of life, to our work, to our recreation, and how we view the world around us. You know, as Aaron mentioned, increasingly we are strangers and aliens, and the world will be hostile towards us. But you know what? It was like that in the first and second century as well. And yet, what broke down barriers that were revolutionary? The gospel of Jesus Christ going forth to every tribe and tongue and nation. And then they adorned the gospel and how they lived. Even today, it's good to see that that Christians are on the leading edge of, of giving to the poor and needy. Let that only increase. Let us only increase in working for justice and against oppression and think through, what does that look like for me? Helping the poor and homeless and trying to change welfare laws to help train people or assist people, not based on how much it costs or how effective the law, but how effective the law is at helping the people it, it really intends. Don't be selfish. We think, okay, wait a minute. Let's, let's reform things so that it really changes and helps people get back up on their feet. Some basic things that, that just are truths that God has put into society that, you know, hey, if a person generally gets a certain level of understanding education, you know, in the, in, in the U.S., they, they've proven that if you get a high school education, if, you, um, if you're able to get a job, you're, you get married, you have children, that um, the good majority of that sector won't, won't struggle with some of the poverty issues. So how can we work towards God's good grace in helping in some of those areas and some of those ways? Maybe it's tutoring pe- people. Maybe it's acting as a big brother or a big sister. Maybe, I don't know, you can think about tons of different things. Ask yourselves, what are we doing to help and, help and love and proclaim truth? I, I thought yesterday, I'll, I'll close with this beautiful picture that I saw yesterday. Um, I, I got to go and, and be a part of, and I, a lot of you here did too, be a part of a beautiful picture of the reconciling work of God. Um, Willie Warren King got to, to marry um, the girl of his dreams, and they are from two different ethnicities. And it was wonderful to see the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I loved her dad, who is stereotypically the whitest white guy. With the, and I'm, I'm not going to offend him. I mean, that's not a bad thing, okay? So um, he's got southern, the thick southern drawl. And he says, Willie, who is from Cameroon, and he's dark-skinned. He says, Willie, you're my brother. You're not just my son-in-law. You're my brother in Christ. And to see the reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we share the same blood. The gospel transforms. It's a beautiful picture. I'm going to read you a, one little lyrics, I guess from a song, You Made Us Your Own. It says, We were ruined in our sin, we were guilty and undone, when your love reached down with sovereign hands and beckoned us to come. You sought out the wanderers, made the prodigals come home with a lavish feast, you welcomed us, for you made us your own. We are strangers to the world, but no strangers to your throne. We draw near you now with confidence, for all our fears are gone. For when Christ our King returns, we'll meet saints we've never known and forever we'll be amazed that you made us your own. You have loved us like you love your Son. We are heirs with Christ, bought by His blood. Oh, how great the love that we have been shown. 
We're your children now. You've made us your own. May that compelling picture of the gospel, may that excite you and thrill you and transform you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to the very real issues of society that we face, the very real temptations that we have. And God, would you transform us? Would you help us to think about how we think about other people based on your image? Lord, would you help us relate to people based on how you related to people and what you came to do? God, would you help us follow in your footsteps because you saw us when we were at enmity with you and you tell us to love your enemies now. And so, Lord, surely we can love the people around us who are not our enemies. God, I pray that for your transforming grace, I pray for hope, and Lord, I pray for an excitement at at your good news that we would be able to apply these things. Lord, let us be creative in thinking of ways, and let's, um, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us ideas that we might be effective for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you may be dismissed. Um, Next week, um, we're gonna be in the book of John on a little hiatus. I'm gonna be on vacation the 4th of July. Um, Today, there is a secret sisters, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, banquet, I guess. It's at 2 p.m. It's going to be at um, the house of Rita Williamson. If you don't know where that is, you can ask her. There's a table out there. You can get a form, pick it up if you want to do that again. And you are dismissed. Thanks. Go pick